teach it. You would let your spirit lead and help us just to learn it and understand it. And Lord, as we just get into this tonight about the flesh, Lord, you are our righteousness. You are our defense. We need you in all ways. And we say thank you in your name. Amen. We started our study in 1 John here a few weeks ago, and I just want the record to show we did chapter 1 in one week. And we have really slowed down here in chapter 2. Um, tonight we are doing three verses. So, I don't know if that's better or worse than last week, but we are getting through this. No, last week we did three verses as well. So we've leveled out at three verses. Now, the reason we're kind of going so slow through this is this stuff is just so good. It's just so absolutely wonderful. And just the, the depth of this book, this book has got just the application side of it, but it's also got the theology side of it, just the practical side of it. And I just absolutely have always loved First John. And as you go through these verses tonight, we're going to do verses 15 through 17. There are so many layers to this. So with that being said, let's just take a look at it. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. There is so much in this. First off, let's break this down. What's the world where it says you're not supposed to love the world or the things of the world? And you see in verse 16 about the world and verse 17 about the world. This is an interesting word in the Greek. We actually use this in our English language. It's the Greek word cosmos. And it's referring to the world system. It's referring to the affairs of this earth, how the world runs. It is not referring necessarily to the people of this world because the same Greek word is used in the very famous verse of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So it's not that God is being contradictory here. God is saying in John 3 that he loves the world, the people. That's why he died for them. But he's saying here in 1 John, he does not love the way the world system is. This world system is messed up. It is completely messed up. That is why there has to be a new heaven and a new earth. That is why this world will be judged. This is why there is the book of Revelation. Because this world is past the point of being saved. This cosmos, this system, it doesn't work. It's under sin. It's completely cursed. In fact, it says in the book of Romans, I believe it's chapter 8, that the whole world groans being under this curse. We are cursed. The system's cursed. The animals are cursed. Everything is completely, utterly cursed. So we need a new heaven and a new earth. And God is reminding us, do not love this system. Now, this is once again not saying not to love the people. It's also not saying to not love the sense of God's beautiful creation. You go back and read Psalms and you see chapter after chapter about going out and realizing the beauty of God's creation. It's saying don't get caught up in the system of this world. What does it look like when we do that? Keep your hand here in 1 John. Just back up a few books of James 4, please. James 4. James goes one step further. You've heard me mention this before. I do believe when a new believer comes to me and says, where should I start in the Bible? I usually tell them to start in the book of John. I think that's a great book to understand who Jesus Christ is. Then I usually tell them to go read the book of 1 John. Because I think 1 John is a great book that starts bringing in practical ideas of how to live the Christian life with some good theology. And then I usually tell them to go to the book of James. Because the book of James will knock you down. And it reminds us a lot of things. First John says a lot of the stuff that James says. James says it a lot of the way that First John does. But First John seems to tell it to you as this loving father with his arm around you. Saying, hey guys, don't love the world. It's not worth it. Well, let's look how James says it. James 4, 
Verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity fighting with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, first John is the loving father with his arm around you saying, don't love the world. James is like the drill instructor pointing his finger at you saying, don't. They're saying the same message. James comes and says this. Everything bad comes from this world's sinful system. Verse 1, where do the wars and fights come from? You. You lust. You can't get what you want. So now you're angry. You're upset. You fight. You war. And now you're greedy. So you don't even get what you want because now you're greedy. Verse 3, you're going to spend it on your pleasures. Verse 4, adulterers adulterers and adulteresses. We talked about this a little bit on Sunday. That idea that we're in a spiritual relationship with the Lord. And it's almost like we're cheating on God when we go to the world. Verse 4, that when we go to the world and we make friends with the world, it's like we're really fighting with God. Look at the end of 4. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is a pretty straightforward passage right there. You can't be born again and saved in Jesus Christ and be a friend of the world. You can't. It's just not possible. And I think what has happened is we have kind of created this Christianity that we're just slightly different than the world... But yet we're still born again and saved. That's not what you see the Bible teaching. Stay in James 4, verse 5. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is jealous for us. And please remember the biblical definition of jealousy with this. It's not that God is the junior high kid that's jealous of his girlfriends, boyfriends, other friends. God says, I love you so much that anytime I see something come into your life, that's going to cause you harm. I'm jealous for you because I want the best for you. So God is saying, when I see you become friends with the world, I get jealous. Not because I'm self-conscious as God, but I want the best for you. Verse 7, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is a theme now. When you try to say, I'm born again and saved and walking with Jesus Christ, but yet I'm making friends with the world and loving the world, it's considered being double-minded. You can't be that way. It just absolutely doesn't work. We're called out. We're called to be separate. So what do we do with this? Well, there's a lot of things you can do with this. Some people want to just run to the hills. They just want to run to the hills, build their little fort, wait for the return of Jesus Christ and the second coming and the rapture, and just hope that everything is going to be fine and everything is going to be dandy. That sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Not have to deal with anything anymore in this world? The problem is this. Jesus, when he was praying in John 17, he prayed this. He goes, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We're not of the world. Got to please remember that. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. See, Jesus says, Lord, I'm not telling you, asking you to take them out. You keep them in this world. Just keep them unspotted from the world. You can't just go run to the hills and just pretend the world doesn't exist. There was a time where Christianity did that. That's when we started getting monasteries and monks 
We're just going to go take a vow of silence. We're going to go, go to the hills. We're just going to study God's word. And guess what? We'll never go witness, evangelize, or do anything. Now, we don't do that a lot anymore, but I see this in Christianity today. I see where people don't want to be touched by the world, so they take their family, they build their little fort around their family, and they're going to let the family get into anything. Anything. And they're just going to keep this family safe. Amen. Keep your family safe. I'm all for that. But the point is, you're supposed to be out in this world representing Jesus Christ and all that we say and all that we do. And Jesus said himself, I'm not saying to take them out of the world, but keep them in this world. This is now where you have to understand what's it mean to be in this world. Well, there's this word that we like to use, and I think we misunderstand it, and it's the word holy and it's the word saint. It's the same word in the Greek. And that word means separated. Separated to God. Fancy term is consecrated to God. So when the Bible says you're a saint... The problem is some of you have grown up in denominations where saints were like these super-Christians. Now, that's not what the biblical definition of saint is. Saint just means separated to God. And I am holy. doesn't mean I'm perfect. It means I'm separated to God. So God has called you to be a saint. He has called you to be separated from this world, but yet still live for Him in this world. Now, this is something we've seen in the Bible. Joshua said this back in Joshua 24. Choose this day whom you will serve. You have to get up and choose whom you're going to serve. When Elijah was at Mount Carmel, he said this to everybody. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If Lord is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, follow him. Elijah says, I'm calling you out. You're either of the world or you're of God. Choose. Joshua said the same thing. John's saying the same thing. James is saying the same thing. Jesus is saying the same thing. You've got to choose. The problem is when we teach and preach this today, people start screaming out legalism. I don't think this is legalism. I think this is theology. I think this is just what God wants us to do. We're called to be different from the world. We should be different in how we act and how we live and how we dress, what we watch, what entertains us, what drives us. Because if we're still the same as the world, what exactly have we been separated from? What exactly have we been saved from? I don't think this means that we have to go out and live some type of legalistic lifestyle. But what it says is this. When the world comes in, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to love the world. I don't want to love the system of the world. I want to love the Father. What does that look like for you as an individual? I can't tell you. I know what it looks like for me and my family. And we're in a constant process of saying, Lord, are we allowing the world to sleep in? Come in. Sneak in. No, Lord. We want to be all you And so when this passage is telling you, do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's a good time to take a break, ask yourself some questions. Has the world come into your life? Does the world kind of dictate how you make decisions, what you watch, what entertains you, what you wear, what you say? We have to be careful of that. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. And we have to remember that. So that's what 1 John is trying to lay the foundation here. And this is something that we need to understand before we get into the rest of it. So any quick questions, comments about that here before we move on? Okay. Love the people of the world. Don't love the system of the world. That's what God is reminding us there. So with that being said, what happens next? Verse 16, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. Everything falls into those categories. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, every time I teach this, I always tell people this, and I tell them not to waste time. Any sin you can think of falls into one of those three categories. It does. And I have a guy that told me one time he spent the rest of the message trying to find a sin that did not fit in those three categories. Could you please just trust me on this one? 
I know the Bible says be a Berean and check me out, and I get that. Just do it at home. Don't waste your time now. Any sin is one of those three things. It's either the lust of the flesh, it's either the lust of the eyes, or it's the pride of life. It's one of those things. So that's why sin is just so easily categorized that way. And it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. Now, this is where we build on this. You've heard me teach on this before. Go with me now, please, to um, Genesis. Genesis 3. Those three categories, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, it's been around from the beginning, and it's the same problems that we still face today. Take a look here, Genesis 3, the fall of man. You guys know the story. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now normally when we teach on this, we talk about how Satan's plan from the beginning, John eight forty four, he's the father of lies. What Satan does is he twists things, and he just outright lies. He takes God's word, he twists it, and then he just outright lies. Verse 4, it's an outright lie. You will not surely die. And he twists things. Back to verse 1. Has God indeed said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? Some of the most popular cults, if you will, have an element of Christianity in there. Because Satan has learned over thousands of years, keep an element of truth in it, just twist it. If you go back and you start talking to Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses or something like that, you're going to be talking about Jesus. You're going to talk about Christ's death on the cross. You're going to talk about eternity. But there's elements of truth that have been twisted that then become outright lies. This is what Satan has done from the beginning. He still does it. The problem is the woman listened. Verse 6, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees, leaves together, and made themselves coverings. Look at verse 6. The three categories, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. You see it there in verse 6. Lust of the flesh. She saw that it was good for food. Lust of the eyes. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. Pride of life. She saw it was desirable to make one wise. She fell. He fell in all three of those areas. So from the beginning, we see that those three categories are the sins that we're going to battle for the rest of our lives. They all fall there. Those are the three categories of sin in 1 John. That's exactly how Adam and Eve fell. Now go with me, if you will, please, to Matthew chapter 4. Now you see with the temptation of Jesus, he defeats the enemy in all three of these categories. That's why we can say that he is our righteousness. Because he defeated these for us. That's why it's so important, as it says in Hebrews, that Jesus, our Savior, our our high priest, the blessing that he is. It says this in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, in all things, he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, that's our fancy word, to make appeasement for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus goes through those three temptations, those same three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Adam and Eve fell in them. 
brought sin into the world. Jesus Christ defeats them, can take sin out of the world. This is how it works. And I think it's fascinating that those three categories are where we fell, but it's those three same categories which Christ won and he was tempted in. Look at Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, we need to talk about that word tempted for a second. When you and I think of the word tempted, we think of temptation. I'm allured to it, I want it, and I desire it. The biblical definition of the word tempted, it can mean that. But most of the time in the Bible, when it's using the word tempted, it means more like tested. And we have to remember, being tempted is not a sin. It's when you give in to temptation that makes it a sin. I'm going to be tempted to lose my temper sometimes. I'm going to be tempted to be lazy. I'm going to be tempted to do inappropriate things. I'm going to be tempted to say inappropriate things. Now, if I do it, it's a sin. If I don't do it, it's not a sin. The enemy is going to try to tempt us. So when Jesus Christ here is being tempted, he's also being tested. It's a really important word that we understand that and we know that. That's why in a lot of places it says that when your faith is being tested, tested. So Jesus Christ goes into the wilderness, and now it's a time of temptation, testing. Now, I don't look at this story, and I don't look at this idea of Jesus being in the wilderness, and when he's being tempted by this, that he really wants to give in. I believe that it's a test that he takes and a test that he passes. You know, if you look at something, and I think it was J. Vernon McGee is the first one I've ever heard use this analogy, is that he was talking one time about a story of when he was a kid, that they put a uh, bridge in for trains. And so they put this bridge in for trains where he lived in Texas, and when they got the bridge done, they brought a bunch of locomotives, and they left them on the bridge and just let them sit there. And so, see, he asked somebody, he said, what are you trying to do? They said, we're testing the bridge. And he says, because you think the bridge is going to fail? And the guy said, no, because we know the bridge isn't going to fail. We're doing this to prove to you guys that the bridge won't fail. And I think that's what it is with Jesus. If I read through Matthew 4, and I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, don't give in. Don't give in. No, he's not going to give in. He's not. He proved who he was. He passed the test. And so, therefore, it wasn't a temptation to him like we think of. It was a test to him. I always use this analogy, and you've heard me say this in the years out here before. I always use the analogy of rhubarb. I hate rhubarb. Absolutely hate it. It is a weed that grows outside around buildings. If I see it, I spray it or weed whack it. I want nothing to do with it. Dawn absolutely loves rhubarb, and she gets it, she makes it, she cuts it up, and she does stuff with it. And if she cooks rhubarb, what's the first thing you have to do? For you that do anything with rhubarb, what do you have to put in rhubarb every time? Tons and tons of sugar. Why? Because it's awful. It's absolutely awful. If it was so good, you wouldn't put... It is absolutely awful, and you have to put so much sugar in it to make it taste good. So if you come to me and you say, I made a rhubarb pie, I have rhubarb crisp, and you loft it in front of me, I am not tempted by that in any way whatsoever. It's a test for me because it's so disgusting I don't want it. It's not a temptation. And every time I teach this and I use this example, there's one of you sweet, generally speaking, older ladies comes up to me and says, oh, you've never tried my rhubarb. And I always say, does it taste like rhubarb? And they always say, yes. And I say, then I'm going to hate it. Because you can't make it taste different than rhubarb. So if somebody brings rhubarb to me, I'm not tempted. If you bring chocolate pie, I'm tempted. Jesus is tempted in the sense of that he is tested. 
And I think we need to understand this and understand the difference in the words here. He did go through it. It was a test to him because we just read that. And so therefore he can relate to us. And so when he defeats those three things, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Therefore, when you are now battling a temptation or a test, you can go to Jesus and say, I need help. He says, I know I've been there. You may say, oh, he never dealt with what I dealt with. He never dealt with that, that urge of, of drinking. Oh, he dealt with the lust of the flesh. Falls under the same category. Well, he never dealt with that desire to work harder and more money and overtime and all this other stuff. He dealt with the pride of life. It's the same thing. See, he went through those same testings and he passed so he's able to help us. So now I can cry out to him and he can help me. So let's look at these. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up to the Spirit, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came, please note the tempter is going to come into your life. It's not a matter of if, it's when. You will be tempted. And Satan has been watching human nature for 6,000 years. He knows how to tempt us. And he has watched us. He knows us. When the tempter came to him, he said, If, if you are the Son of God, Command that these stones become bread. Now, just honestly ask this yourself this. What's the longest you've gone without eating? 40 days. 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 2 is fascinating. Afterwards, he was hungry. Of course he was hungry. It hasn't eaten in 40 days. Now, if you've ever studied this out, you know one thing that the body does. The body does this. If you, after, after you fast for a while, it's kind of fascinating. You actually become where you're not hungry. Your body kind of shuts down for a little bit. And then you become hungry a second time. And when you become hungry a second time, that's your body's way of saying, you need to eat now or you're going to die. So when it says that he became hungry, this isn't like, well, of course he was hungry. This is like now life or death hunger. So now Satan shows up. Just make the stones become bread. What's the big deal? It's lust of the flesh. Well, how's it lust of the flesh? You're Jesus. You can walk on water. You can raise the dead. But he never used his miraculous power for his own gain. He lived this life as a human. As a human. I, I'm not allowed to make stones become bread. If Jesus would have made stones become bread, it means he's cheating the system. Not going to do it. He passed the test. Verse 4. He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If we had more time, we'd get into this. Please note, Jesus defeats the enemy every time of Scripture. Every time of Scripture. Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? The longer I do this, the more I realize, the more scripture I memorize, the better it is. Get in the word as much as you can. Get in the word. Please also do note, too, that every verse that Jesus quotes is from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, he didn't have the New Testament. He's writing it. He had the Old Testament. And if you had picked the Old Testament and say, What are the most difficult books in the Old Testament? A lot of us have probably picked Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But it's fascinating that every verse he quotes was from Deuteronomy. I tell you guys, there's something about the Old Testament. And when you study the Old Testament, here's a little hint. Just always look for Jesus in it. When you look for Jesus in the Old Testament, it makes the Old Testament come alive. Verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. The best we can tell, the highest point in the temple would have been about 200 feet. That's pretty high up. So Satan's got this great idea. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. 
Everybody will see you. It'll be the best circus act of all time. You don't need to go to the cross. Skip the cross, and everybody will follow you because you can do amazing circus acts. See, that's the thing that the world wanted from the beginning. Hey, you fed the 5,000. Hey, you fed the 4,000. Keep feeding us. We'll love that. Raise another dead person. Walk on water. In fact, the Bible says that when Jesus went before Herod for his trial, Herod wanted to see some tricks. And Jesus wouldn't do it. Because by him doing this, he would skip the cross. And it's this idea of the pride of life. Let them know you're the Messiah, Jesus. Jump off the temple. It's already promised in verse 6. He'll give his angels charge over you. You won't even hurt your foot. Please know what the enemy is doing now. He's quoting scripture. That's what Satan does. He takes scripture and he twists it. And these scriptures that he's quoting, he's not finishing them. He's taking words out. And number two, he's completely twisting it and taking it out of context. I heard a pastor say one time, if you really want, you can make the Bible say anything you want. You can. I was doing some research the other day on marriage. And I got on this really good site. And I was studying it out about marriage. And he's talking about husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he's talking about wives, respect, honor, submit. It's like, this is some good stuff here. And I'm just reading it and really studying it through it. And then I got a little bit farther along. And then he starts talking about the biblical mandate to have more than one wife. He was not Mormon. He just said, this is where it's at in the Bible. And what he said is this. He goes, most people just aren't mature enough to understand this. So I talked to Dawn about it. It didn't go real well. But the point is, I'm just kidding. I didn't. Just kidding. Just kidding. He's quoting verses left and right because he's talking about how the kings did this and people did this. They're out of context. It's not right. It's twisted. You're going to have people show up at your door and they're going to quote your Bible verses. They're going to be out of context and they're going to take things out of it. Satan did the same thing. He did it back in Genesis 3. He's doing it now. He's the father of lies. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Defeats him with scripture. Verse 8, Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. He can do this. The Bible makes it clear that he is the God of this age and the ruler of this world. I'm not trying to pick, and I'm not going to try to attack or defend any hymns or anything, but I remember growing up uh, singing that hymn, This Is My Father's World. I like the hymn. But this is not my father's world. If this is my father's world, then I, I disagree with my father. The Bible says this. This is Satan's world. He is the ruler of this world and the God of this age, and that's why he can offer this to Jesus. This is what? The lust of the eyes. Jesus, just look. The whole world, it's yours. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. One little thing, Jesus, verse 9, would you just worship me? If you study it out in Isaiah 14, when Satan fell from heaven, the reason he fell, let's go look at it ourselves. Isaiah 14. I think this is a good passage to know because it does some nice background on Satan and to understand Satan. Isaiah 14. What Satan wanted was to be like God. He wanted worship. And so therefore, he'll give up his world, his kingdom, just to have Jesus worship him. Please remember the importance of worship. The, the, the longer I, I study this out and the more I understand it, I realize the importance of worship. Because worship, it, it says in Hebrews that it's a sacrifice of praise. And worship is getting my mind off me and it's focusing on something bigger and better than me. If there is something bigger and better than God, then I should worship it. So if, we, if Satan could get Jesus to worship him, Satan says, I'm bigger and better than God. That's why it's such a big deal. Look at the fall of Lucifer here, Isaiah 14, verse 12. 
How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, look at this, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will descend above the heights. I, excuse me, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Satan wants to be God. If he can get Jesus to worship him, he's got it. So he says, I'll trade you, Jesus. You can have the world back. You just give me your worship. Verse 10, back in Matthew 4 now. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Eve fell. Adam fell. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Those same three areas are where we fall today. Every sin falls under the category. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. In the wilderness, Jesus defeated the enemy in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what's so beautiful about this is we fell in these areas, and Jesus won in these areas. That's why he is the high priest that is there to help us. That's why he is the priest that we can go to and say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't battle this. He says, I know. I've been there. Hebrews 4 says this, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. Listen to that. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's what's so amazing about this. What's the result? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're here tonight, and you're battling a lust of the flesh, you're battling a lust of the eyes, you're battling a pride of life, don't you, aren't you thankful that you have Jesus Christ, a high priest, that fought those same battles and won, and he became righteousness for us. And that's part of the beauty of this. Now, we've got a couple final points to say before we do this, but let's just stop real quick. Any quick questions, comments about this? Marcus. I don't want to get into the weeds too far here, but Lucifer's fall, I see the element of pride there. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I see the others. Oh, the, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life? Well, I would say with those type of things in Isaiah 14, let me go back to it real quick. Yeah, pride is why he fell. That's the main thing there is the pride is that he wanted to be like God. That's the pride. And I think everything else falls under that. The lust of the eyes, he saw what God created. He wanted to be the God of that kingdom. The lust of the flesh, he wanted that idea for himself. He wanted everything. So what I'm trying to say is, I guess, when it comes to the Isaiah 14, is the last point is the main point. When he said, I'll give up my world for you to worship me. That's the main thing that he wanted was the worship of God. And if he could get Jesus to worship him, he would give up his little kingdom on this world for that. Kathy. Yes. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a question. It's always fascinating, and I think we forget this. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because I read that as well, too, that it's since you are the Son of God. It goes back to that verse in James where it says even the demons believe. I mean, they know. I mean, if you look at when Jesus started having interactions with the demons in the Gospels, they came right out and said, you're the Son of God. We get it, we know it, and we understand it. There's no doubt that they knew who he was. We're the ones that seem to struggle with this. You know, and we make this comment all the time out here, and it's not a joke. There are no atheists in hell. There aren't. Because it says in Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Satan knew who Jesus was, and that's why he was trying to get him away from the cross. And that's why he said, if I can get Jesus to worship me, I just trumped him. 
it's, it's a huge thing. Anybody else have anything here before I go on? Mark. Is, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I, I mean, I've mentioned this before, but growing up in a church, I, my mind, I always had Jesus and Satan as these equals battling it out. And I just remember having this epiphany of, wait a second, Jesus created him. There is no comparison. I mean, there's just not. We have this tendency to make Satan more powerful than what he is. And he is a created being that has been created, and he will fall. In fact, it says in the book of Hebrews that we will, not in Hebrews, it says in Corinthians, we will judge the angels. So, it's kind of a fascinating thing. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. You couldn't stop it. You're talking about he didn't have to understand how, how important the cross was? That's an interesting way to look at it, because I would almost go, I think in some ways, a little bit the other way. I think maybe he did know how important the cross was, and that's why he was trying to stop it. I don't know, though, for sure if he still fought in pride, because this is where I would maybe kind of understand a little bit of what you're saying, is pride makes us think we're stronger or more powerful than what we are. I mean, it is. I, I remember growing up as a kid getting a pair of boxing gloves, and uh, Dad boxing me and I would always knock him down and to this day he always got up on the nine count he always got up on the nine count and I always thought I almost got him I almost got him and uh Kenan my third son he's in this phase right now he's like dad let's fight let's fight let's fight I can take you on I can beat you up and I always tell him you know what in 10 years you can but right now it's not even a fight but there's still this element of I can do this and so I understand a little bit of what you're saying I think he did know how important the cross was. That's why he did everything he could to stop it to the point of possessing Judas and betraying, betraying Christ, etc. But at the same time, too, I think there's an element of pride that thinks he can stop it. And I think there's an element of pride that says that, you know what, I'm even going to go all the way to the book of Revelation and I'm going to have this great battle of Armageddon where I get the armies of the world and I'm going to take on God. Man, pride is... Oh, it says in Proverbs, pride goes before destruction. So... All right, I got two things here I want to finish with. Go back there to 1 John, please. 1 John. This is how it just sums this up in verse 17. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Boy, that just that sums it up. The world is passing away and the lust of it. Um, Judah. Our second son has a birthday coming up here this weekend. He's going to be 12. And we were out the other day. We were just talking about I said, Judah, what do you want for your birthday? And he's, he's probably the more rational one of the five boys. And he goes, you know, I want to get something that I'm going to use every day. So that way it's not just get it, open it, 
play with it for a while, toss it off to the side. You know, that idea of realizing things are going to pass away. Now, I hope he really gets that at 12, and I hope that takes him on through the rest of his life. Because I know people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s that still think one more toy is going to be all they want. And they get that toy, and you know what? That toy's fun for a while, and it's fun. But then there's a newer, better toy. Then it's not just about toys. It can be relationships. It can be jobs. It can be spiritual things, churches, ministries, whatever. The world is passing away. There's always going to be something that, oh, I want that more. I want that more. I want that more. And the lust of it. That's why verse 17, but he who does the will of God abides forever. I tell you, get an eternal focus that the only thing that matters is eternity. That's all that matters. Soul saved in eternity. And go out there and just equip the saints to just love Jesus and focus on eternity. I I think back to that story in Luke where it says the man had all this increase. And he says, I'm going to build more barns and bigger barns and store all my stuff. And then it says, you fool. Do you not know that your life will be required of you tonight? The world is passing away in the lust of it. Focus on eternity. Invest in eternity. That's all that matters. And I just love how simply put in 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. I just encourage you to have a good heart check with yourself and just say, am I focusing on the passing things of this world or am I focusing on what really matters for all of eternity? You're going to find more joy in the eternal. It really is true. And I love how 1 John just sums it up so nicely there. All righty. I think that's the final thing. So make sure. Yep. All right. Anybody got any final questions, comments? Here? John. Yeah. Every day there's something better. Yeah. Good study Bible for Judah. Well, you know, he's already fluent in Hebrew and Greek, so, you know. Um... <laughs> yeah, really good study Bible, yeah. He's working on his own book of the Bible, that's what I know. <laughs> See, I shouldn't have said that. Anybody else have any final things here before we close up? All right, here, why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, I just want us to focus on that. The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Lord, in our day-in, day-out routine, help us to have the wisdom to see when the world is creeping in, the desires of the world, the lust of the world, and then, Lord, help us to focus on you, the will of God that abides forever. And Lord, if there's someone here tonight struggling with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, remind them they have a high priest, a savior that was tempted in all parts that we are, but yet defeated it and that we can boldly go to him for help in time of need. Thank you for being righteousness for us. Thank you. Lord, help us to love you and not this world in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.